episode 49, Neil Deswani, author of the book, Big Breaches, Cybersecurity Lessons for Everyone. I effectively hacked into his system and would be able to change people's grades, change their assignments, do all kinds of things. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com for show notes, links, and a chance to win a signed copy of Neil's book, go to markgraben.com slash mistake49. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And now on with the show. Hi, welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graben. We're joined today by Neil Deswani. Uh, among other things, he is the co-director of Stanford Advanced Security Program. He has a PhD in computer science from Stanford. And he has a book that's going to be released at the end of February called Big Breaches, Cybersecurity Lessons for Everyone. Uh, so, Neil, thank you for joining us today. How are you? Hi, Mark. I'm doing quite well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, you're, uh, you know, eminently qualified to talk about, you know, the subject of cybersecurity. And, and I, I assume, assume as the book does our conversation about that, you'll make it understandable for all of us. I will do my best to speak in English all the time. And if you see me running off track, just let me know. Okay, sure thing. Uh, it would be a mistake, I guess, if, it, if there was too much jargon that we didn't understand. <laughs> yes. Um, but, um, you know, as we normally do, Neil, before we get into some of those other topics here and have conversations about all of that, um, you know, thinking back to work you've done, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Sure. Well, I'd say that my, my favorite mistake was back when I was in graduate school. Uh, I was taking a database course, and one of my professors had set up a new grading system that I think uh, another student had, had coded. And uh, I, being, of course, in computer security and very naturally curious, I effectively hacked into his system. Um, I identified that it had a particular kind of vulnerability where if you log in just after the administrator logs in, then you were given administrator privileges and would be able to change people's grades, change their assignments, do all kinds of things. And uh, that's my, uh, well, and so the, the mistake was that, you know, once I got in as an administrator, I changed the administrator's password to the word cracked to prove that I had broken the system. And that was the mistake. That was my favorite mistake. It was my favorite mistake because um, it, uh, I, I learned a lot from it. Um, the professor was furious, absolutely furious. I was wondering, <laughs> what was the aftermath of this? But go on. <laughs> and I was afraid I was going to get suspended or expelled. And, uh, you know, I had uh, I had CC'd my, my advisor when I had uh, emailed the professor about the vulnerability in the system. And my advisor came to my defense, Hector Gar Garcia Molina, um, had the digital library project and the guy that bought Larry and Sergey their discs. Uh, you know, thank, thanks to him for coming to my defense and, and allowing me to complete my PhD. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the mistake was that I had changed the administrator's password. If I had simply 
alerted him as to the vulnerability and maybe had a meeting with him and showed him how the vulnerability worked, but didn't make any changes to the system, uh, I don't think he would have been as upset. So uh, that was my favorite mistake. So other than what, did you just get kind of a, a scolding or, or some threats or just a little bit of anger thrown at you? Was that really the worst? Uh, the, the worst of it was I got a slap on my wrist and uh, was told not to not to do it again. And I, I learned from it. I learned about when you find security vulnerabilities in, in real systems, even if it's something as innocuous as a grading system, uh, people can get very upset. And so how one... Um, you know, manage the situation after that uh, in such a way so that you don't make any changes, but still demonstrate the vulnerability and how to fix it was just very important. Is there, you know, I guess amongst quote unquote hackers or security professionals, I mean, is, is, is it a matter of kind of like a code of how to go about these things? So over the years, there's a, a concept called uh, responsible disclosure that has arisen. And the way that responsible disclosure works is that when you find such a vulnerability, you, you let the organization that runs a system know about it. And you, you give them, you first of all, of course, you know, don't make any changes to their systems uh, explicitly or in, inadvertently. And you, you give them appropriate uh, time. The two parties should come to agreement as to when is a reasonable time to have it fixed? Uh, and when is a reasonable time to talk about the vulnerability after it has been fixed? And so uh, that's what that's what responsible disclosure is all about. And so, um, yeah, we talk about after that uh, responsible disclosure takes place. And I wanted to ask a follow-up question in this case here with the grading system. Um, a, did they update the system and B, did you check <laughs> to see maybe, you know, how long it took if it indeed did get fixed? So, so yes, they did fix the system. They fixed it pretty fast. <laughs> and um, I did, I did, I did check, but I went ahead and I let the professor know, hey, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to check. So if it tickles any alarms or whatnot, it's because I'm, I'm, I'm checking <laughs> Did they tell and, you and not I, to check? Yeah. No, no, no. They didn't say not to check. I think the other thing that's important is that when you when you do check, you, you go you, you seek permission and you get authorization. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also say that you know when if you're a security researcher, you're looking for vulnerabilities to to only do these things on on test systems um, and not the actual production real life systems because you don't you don't just know you, you don't know what havoc you can possibly wreck. Yeah. Wow. Um, is, is there, I, I've heard terminology, um, uh, you know, white hat versus black hat. Mm -hmm. were, were, were you coming out and can you, can you explain those terms a little bit? You, you were coming at this as a quote unquote, uh, white hat hacker. You weren't, you were just curious, not you weren't trying to do any harm or you could have, I guess. Right. Uh, that, 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 so that's correct. So, um, I, I was coming as a white hat hacker. And so, White hats are typically the good guys that are trying to defend systems. Black hats are the bad guys that are trying to find the vulnerabilities and break in and then do malicious things. Uh, and so I have I have always been a white hat, and uh, I've learned how to become a better white hat uh, over time. Uh, and uh, I think you know, given given some of the uh, escapades in my career, 
um, whether whether it have been you know having you know progressed from being a security researcher to a uh, security product developer uh, to a founding CEO of a startup to chief information security officer of a public company, uh, I've certainly gotten better about uh, how to be a white hat. But I think that um, I also believe it's important to embrace uh, the habit of continuous learning and and always continuing to become better. Yeah. Um, now that you're on the um, you know professor side of completing your PhD and you're teaching, um, is any of the uh, you know the quote unquote white hat tactics um, taught formally in any classes, or is this just sort of part of quote unquote hacker culture and things that people learn from each other as their kids or students or what have you? So as as co-director of Stanford's Advanced Security Program. Uh, I do. I do instruct. I do uh, teach classes. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, a full university professor or tenured or anything like that. Um, you know, and um, w- one of the one of the things that I that I love about the Standard Advanced Security Program is that I, I co-direct that program together with uh, John Mitchell and Dan Bonet. John Mitchell is the head of the computer science department currently, and Dan Bonet is a, a world-renowned luminary in computer security. Um, and you know, I, I bring uh, the industry influence to that to that program. Um, one of the, one of the great things uh, about doing that is there has been more and more instruction over time on teaching people how to think like the black hats, but operate always as a white hat. And in our courses and in our labs, we do teach people how to break into systems. We give them all the appropriate advice, only do this on test systems and whatnot, but we do teach them to techniques on how to break in, whether it be, how do you exploit a SQL injection vulnerability? How do you exploit a cross-site scripting vulnerability? And I realize I just stopped speaking English there for, <laughs> for a few seconds. Hey, I mean, this, this topic and, and everything may, may have attracted an audience who knows exactly what you're saying. But, <laughs> but bottom line, bottom line, I, I think it is important to, to, to teach people how to be uh, a good, good white hat. And by the way, you know, there's some companies that, for instance, um, hire people that have been black hat hackers in the past. And, you know, um, at the various companies that I've, that I've worked and, you know, over time, I've worked at Google, I've worked at Twitter, uh, I've worked at uh, LifeLock, I've worked at Symantec, I've worked at a whole variety of organizations. But, but my view on that was always, um, you know, very influenced by some of the people that I worked with at Google who had the mindset that, um, you know, if somebody has, you know, in the past been on the black hat side, you know, and there's questions about their ethics and their morals, um, you know, you just may never know when they're going to switch sides again. Now, I, I think there's some, you know, counterexamples to that. I think, uh, you know, Kevin Mitnick, who's one of the most well-known hackers of, of all time, uh, you know, now I, I even I even know the name. So oh, you even know the name. Good, good, very good. Yeah. So, so I, I'd say there's certainly counterexamples, but you know, for instance, when you look at various companies like um, HackerOne or BugCrowd or Synac, you know, these are companies that that um, run bug bounty programs where they work together with companies and they hire a whole bunch of ethical hackers. Um, you know, they hire 
people from all kinds of backgrounds. And because they're coming from all kinds of backgrounds, some of the best such companies will make sure to do all kinds of psychological analyses um, on prospective hackers that they invite to their platform because you just never want to be in a situation where someone finds a vulnerability and they just don't tell you about it. They kind of stockpile it and they can use it later for, uh, you know, they could sell the vulnerability, they could use the vulnerability. So, so I think, uh, you know, the ethics and morals around uh, this sort of stuff is just really important. Yeah. Is this where the phrase, um, I mean, I've heard the phrase, uh, zero day vulnerability. That, that means something has just been discovered. It's day zero. It's still exploitable. It needs to be fixed. Yes, that's correct. In the world of security, there are um, known vulnerabilities um, where some somebody has found a vulnerability and they've reported it and it's you know now part of the national vulnerability database and you know there's likely a patch available to fix the vulnerability. Uh, those are known vulnerabilities. You know, there's also unknown vulnerabilities which have not been discovered yet by anybody, right? Um, all software has bugs. Uh, there's a certain class of bugs that can result in security vulnerabilities. And we may not always know what all the bugs are. We may not always know what the security bugs are. So those are the unknown vulnerabilities. Then there's the situation that you described where uh, somebody discovers a vulnerability for the first time um, and perhaps um, you know, informs the entire world about it, including the organization that has the vulnerability. And it is, it is, it is day zero. Nobody has any time to react, to come up with a, with a patch and that vulnerability could be exploited um, at will. Um, so those are, those are indeed zero day vulnerabilities. Yeah. So somebody, um, you know, discovering this and then, uh, you know, bragging about it online uh, in, in some form would, would, seem like not fall under that responsible disclosure set of code and guidelines. That is exactly right. The way that responsible disclosure would work is when the security researcher uh, finds the vulnerability, uh, they inform the organization and the organization and the individual uh, agree upon an amount of time with which the vulnerability should be fixed. And then the researcher only talks about the vulnerability afterwards so that you know even if you know the vulnerability is found uh, and, it, and it kind of might be might be a zero day right um, the company didn't know about it nobody else knew about it um, there is there is time to fix it and that zero day isn't uh, available to the entire world to exploit um, so 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 yes the right uh, protocol to follow is a responsible disclosure protocol. Now, there are there are some researchers that decide to go directly to the press when they find a vulnerability, which gives, um, you know, the organization zero days to react. It, by the way, also puts important sensitive consumer data at risk uh, and, and puts consumers at risk because, you know, you could have uh, a real attacker, uh, a nation state attacker, a cyber criminal that could also then just start using the vulnerability right, right then and there. Mm-hmm. Um, building on this idea of responsible disclosure, um, how much responsibility is it, let's say in the case of Stanford, like clearly what, what you had hacked into, they didn't hold it against you. You got your PhD, you're working there. Um, I, and I imagine they're not going to be upset with you telling the story after the fact, because what, what's right, there right, had right. been patched. 
but it's it's still kind of embarrassing to say, well, this happened. Um, how much? Um, how, you know, how much uh, ethical responsibility is it for uh, a department or a university or a company um, to share this vulnerability with others who might be also at risk? So I think I think it is it is an important uh, responsibility. So depending upon the nature of the vulnerability, and in this particular case, I mean, this was a vulnerability that I think I had found, um, you know, pre two thousand four. Um, you know, and it was just in one system. It wasn't the main Stanford University grading system. It was um, a system that was being used by just one professor for for his class. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so the, the ramifications were not were not as as significant. Um, okay. You know, many many organizations, Stanford included, have have seen much 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 worse. Um, you know, hacks, compromises, breaches. Um, but, you know, th- this particular story I talk about in the Foundations of a Security book that I published back in 2007 when I was working at Google. So, yeah, the, I, the, there, there's no, no reason for the university to get uh, upset about this, this particular thing. And, you know, they, they've been through, uh, you know, much more significant things. But I think that whenever a researcher finds a vulnerability, um, it is important to, to, to let, um, let's say that you find a vulnerability in an open source software package. Um, it is important to let the developer of that open source software package know about it uh, so that they can they can fix it because chances are there might be a lot of organizations that are using that open source software and there could be a lot of people at risk. In fact, um, you know, if we if we look at what happened in 2017 uh, with the Equifax breach, um, there was a uh, vulnerability in a piece of software called Apache Struts. And Equifax, as well as many, many organizations, use Apache Struts as part of their software development. Um, and there was a vulnerability which basically would allow an attacker coming in from anywhere on the internet to basically issue commands of their choice to a system um, that was running Apache Struts. Um, and you know, the, 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 there was a patch available, uh, made available, and uh, it, it is really important for every organization that then uses that vulnerability that uses that software to patch that vulnerability as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, so I mean, more, most recently in the news, um, the, the solar winds breach is probably the highest profile one that's occurred here recently. Um, can, can you talk about that situation? What What's known about um, causes of the vulnerability, how difficult that's going to be to fix? Or I, I don't even know, maybe first question is what is this solar wind software that um, that so many were using in, in the government, I believe, in the military, also in the private sector. Sure, I'd be happy to talk about solar wind. So, solar winds uh, is, is a company that that makes available many products for uh, information technology purposes and and also security purposes. And solar winds uh, had um, has a product called Orion uh, that's used by you know three hundred thousand customers to monitor um, the performance of certain information technology systems. What happened is that, as as we're all very well aware, software systems need to be updated from time to time. Uh, What happened in this particular case is that a a foreign nation state actor was able to inject uh, malicious code into one of those software updates. And 
in, into particular versions of Orion. So out of the 300,000 customers, there's about 17 or 18,000 that were using the vulnerable version of the Orion IT performance monitoring software that had uh, this malicious code injected. And it allowed the attacker to pretty much take over you know, that system as well as, as well as others. There is a lot of interesting technical detail and a lot of interesting aspects of how uh, it happened. You know, one of the, one of the interesting things was that SolarWinds, some of their, some of the components of their software, some of their software libraries um, that made up their software package, um, you know, was in the past getting flagged by antivirus companies as, you know, potentially being a virus, potentially being malware. But of course it was legitimate software. So, so what, what, uh, what SolarWinds, uh, and, you know, I think did is work with the antivirus community and, and a number of antivirus providers um, whitelisted, meaning mm. they, they gave that library that was getting flagged, they gave it a free pass. So those and warnings so, were rationalized away or it's a false positive was yes. their assessment, I guess. Yes, that's correct. And, and, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it was, it was given a free pass. So when the nation state actor decided they wanted to inject malicious code in that library, they knew that their malicious code was going to get through because that, that component was given a, a free pass. So I think that, you know, there, there's many, many learnings from, from the solar winds attack, but that, that was one that you should not um, necessarily give out these kinds of free passes. Wow. I didn't know that aspect of, of the story. Gosh. Yeah. And there, there's a lot of interesting aspects of the, of the story. You know, um, on one hand, SolarWinds has been called the digital Pearl Harbor, but I think it's important to keep in mind that Pearl Harbor was a complete surprise. This, however, uh, was a third party supply chain compromise, right? Because many organizations use SolarWinds as a third party and the initial vulnerability was in this third party software. But SolarWinds is definitely not the first third-party supply chain compromise. If we think back to some of the biggest breaches that have occurred, if we look at the target breach in 2013, where over 40 million credit card numbers got stolen, uh, Target got compromised because they had a third-party supplier uh, by the name of Fazio Mechanical Services. Uh, it was a supplier that controlled the heating and air conditioning in all of their retail stores. And Fazio Mechanical Services had some of their network credentials stolen. And that is where the breach started. Um, the attackers, because the, the, the target um, network and the Fazio Mechanical Services network were tied together, the attackers were able to breach Fazio Mechanical Services and then go on uh, to, to pivot, pivot, pivot and, and, and breach target. So that was one example. And then just the very next year, JP Morgan Chase in 2014 um, had, had, a, had a breach. I mean, they were spending over 250 million annually on security. They got breached because of one of their third-party suppliers by the name of Simcoe Data Systems that was running a website that was responsible for their nonprofit charitable marathons. So, so, so there certainly have been third-party compromises in the private sector in the past. Uh, but even then, so in 2015, the government's Office of Personnel Management um, got breached. Uh, 20 million government employee identities were stolen in that breach. 
And that was due to a third party by the name of Keypoint Government Solutions that helped the Office of Personnel Management do some of their background checking. Uh, so, so third party compromises are not new at all. What is new here, though, is the, the scale and the scope of the, the third party compromise. And so while there have been a whole bunch of uh, indications of the kind of seriousness of attack that could occur, um, you know, it's, it's expected that the, the number of organizations affected here have just been much larger in the past due to third party compromise. And uh, you mentioned Target and Equifax. Um, I, I think I've got lifetime free credit monitoring, I think, because I know I was part of those two. And um, the Office of Personnel, um, I think that also affected anybody who was in database for security clearance uh, and even people who had been interviewed as part of that. So I've, I've got a that's just a short list of things I think yeah. I've been. Um, caught up in, thankfully, to no known ill effect, but it's not great to receive that notification. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's great that you got you got credit monitoring for for things like the the, the Target and Equifax breaches. You know, credit monitoring was also given out in the um, Office of Personnel Management breach. Um, but you know, and, and you know, it did affect, like you said, it did affect more than just employees. Anybody that got background checked and say perhaps wasn't hired yet. Uh, or, or didn't get hired, whatever, they were also part of that data set. But I'll tell you, I was surprised that credit monitoring was the tool that was given out uh, to, to people for, I don't know, a year or two, because the, the threat the threat is much more significant with all of the identity data that was stolen. And you know, effectively, when people apply for certain government jobs, they fill out these SF-86 forms. And it has, you know, not just your name and your social number, social security number and your address, but it has all that information of all your family, friends, and neighbors that got interviewed as part of that background check. Um, it has things like the results of psycho psychological analyses. Um, it has information on, um, you know, uh, drug history, where'd you live, whatever. And so if you think about if a foreign nation state wanted to mint spies in this country, right, or have people in the country and have them get jobs at government agencies, that is exactly the data set that you want to steal. And credit monitoring, by the way, only protects your credit. It does not protect your assets. It does not monitor um, you know, your, your, your cell phone account, your bank accounts. Um, and so identity theft protection is, 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 you know, would have been a much better thing to give all 20 million government employees. But given the scope of that breach, um, you know, the question is, what are we doing to make sure that spies are not getting minted? And so, you know, in the congressional hearings that took place afterwards, um, you know, it was there were, there were statements made saying that, uh, you know, this is the, the, the biggest blow to um, counterintelligence efforts that had ever taken place and that it'll take generations to recover from. What's done is done. Um, and we've got to, you know, there's no mending what happened here in the past. We've got to look, we've got to figure out how to look forward. So um, that one, one follow-up question, um, that that vulnerability of injecting code in there, um, is, is that something that exists? Is that, does that same vulnerability, uh, how much does that apply to other software systems? Maybe that's unknowable or... 
So I think that's a learning. Yeah. This, this, I mean, this applies to many, many, many systems. As we know, there's many software systems that regularly have to be updated. And I think that for organizations that are affected by solar winds, it's important to not, by the way, I, I, I don't necessarily know that we should be casting blame on, on solar winds, right? Um, I think, you know, well, I think because this is, this is an issue that every software vendor has to deal with. And, um, you know, I, I think once things get looked into, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what, what, what gets learned about, you know, solar wind specifically, but, but in general, any, any software organization that is sending out code updates, especially when their, their software is running with administrative privileges, um, there, there, there's many, many, I guess, tens of thousands of software vendors that could be susceptible to the same sort of thing. Hmm. Couple quick questions before we uh, wrap up. And, and again, you know, our guest is Neil Laswani. Uh, his book is Big Breaches, Cybersecurity Lessons uh, for Everyone. Um, kind of rapid fire questions here. So uh, I use the Chrome browser and I use the password manager. And I get these notifications that have started popping up saying, you know, your passwords on 34 different accounts have been compromised. Um, is that a mistake to ignore those? Should I write after this recording, go look at that list and, and go fix update passwords where I can right away? I think it would be good to, to go ahead and update, uh, you know, your passwords. What's been happening is that a lot of uh, databases of passwords get stolen and they get put up on the dark web. And uh, the the attackers have these huge uh, you know corpus and repositories of stolen passwords, and the first thing that they do is, is try and use them. What what I would also recommend, right, is to use two factor authentication, to use two step verification for any and every online account that offers it, uh, especially with things like banking websites. So when you log in, you don't just apply a password. But a you know a six or eight digit code is sent to your cell phone, and pretty much um, you have to you have to enter enter that code as well. So just because the attackers stole your passwords over from the dark web um, doesn't allow them to log into your accounts. They also need to then compromise uh, you know your cell phone too. Right, and I, I do use on a number of accounts uh, the Google Authenticator tool which I think provides a, a deeper level security to your point, Neil, um, if they were to also somehow clone or steal my phone, that authenticator app, I'll tell you, here's a mistake I've made. And I've done it twice because I don't update my iPhone that often. When you, uh, if you wipe your old phone and then you install Google, Google authenticator on the new device, that creates problems. Like there's, there's a particular way you've got to sort of port over um, permission. So it's good security. But if as a user, you make a mistake about how you manage that, you spend a while rebuilding you your two-factor authentication. So that's one of my mistakes. Yeah, that's right. But, but you know, it's, it's not a, um, it's not a, like, I, I, I think as, as uh, technologists and as an industry, we need to make this easier for, uh, for, for users, right? Um, and, and by the way, the reason that problem existed is because there was a secret that was only known to your old phone. And uh, if it's done right, that secret should not be portable to, to the new phone. Um, you know, you know, even, even using authenticators in general, though, right, when it gives you these six-digit codes or whatnot, you still have to be aware that you can be susceptible to a phishing attack, right? Because just like 
an imposter website can ask you for your username and password. An imposter website could also ask you for the six-digit code, right? And then the imposter website can send that information to the real website and log in on your behalf. So the 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 best defense is to use what's called a uh, a security key, where it's a piece of hardware. It sticks into your laptop or your phone. Uh, there's many folks that manufacture these things. Ubico is one of them. Um, and what it does is it requires that you have this uh, piece of hardware, uh, and you can keep it on your key, you know, your key ring or whatever. But you plug it in when you're logging in, and then it authenticates you based on a secret in that piece of hardware that is not fishable. You can't type the wrong thing into an impossible website. Um, I, I, I would, and, and by the way, you can also use your phone these days as your security key. So Google has made available an advanced feature where you can enable two-step verification and have your cell phone be the security key that allows you to log in. Good tips. Um, Neil, one final question. This is kind of a silly one to end on. So when I was a kid, War Games was a very popular movie. Um, remember liking that movie. Um, is that a mistake to watch? Is it a mistake to watch that movie, do you think? Or, or, uh, or, or are you a fan? War, War Games was an awesome, awesome movie. It is definitely not a mistake to watch War Games. In fact, when my, when my, when my kids are just a little bit older, I want them to, to watch that movie because I think it was one of the, um, I think it came out in the 80s. It was one of the first movies that uh, made it so apparent as to, you know, by, by taking humans out of the loop and just relying on automated computer systems to be able to launch nuclear missiles, uh, you know, here's what can go wrong. You know, and I'll tell you, having, having a PhD in computer science, sometimes I'll tell you, you know, if it's between a computer spitting out an answer with an algorithm, uh, and listening to, to a human, sometimes you want to listen to the human. So I, I think it's definitely not a mistake to, 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 to watch war games. I think there's another great lesson in war games in that, um, you know, I think even today with artificial intelligence, artificially intelligent systems are still learning a whole bunch of things. And there may be some things that AI algorithms may not be able to learn. And I think, you know, at the end of war games, it was just great that the computer was able to learn that the, the game of thermonuclear war, global thermonuclear war, was not a game that you could win, <laughs> you know, just like tic-tac-toe. <laughs> and so, so definitely not a, not a, not a mistake. Uh, great movie uh, to, to watch. Okay, so I'll maybe rewatch that sometime soon. So, Neil, thank you um, so much for um, telling your story um, about, you know, your mistake of... Um, you know, hacking into that system and the way you went about it. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing, um, you know, some other, uh, I think, really interesting thoughts about mistakes that organizations or individuals might make related to uh, cybersecurity. So um, the book, again, by Neil Deswani is Big Breaches, Cybersecurity Lessons uh, for Everyone. Neil, thank you so much uh, for being a guest. Really enjoyed it. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I really enjoyed the time. So again, I want to thank Neil for being such a great guest today. I want to thank you for listening. Again, for show notes, links, and a chance to win a copy of Neil's book, go to markgraben.com slash mistake49. One mistake I've probably been making is not using this opportunity at the end to tell you about upcoming guests. So I'm going to try to correct that going forward. Our next two guests are Phyllis Quinlan. She's a nurse executive 
with a health system and a leadership consultant. We're also going to talk to Lenny Walls. He played cornerback in the NFL for a couple of teams back in the 2000s. So we're going to talk about, of course, favorite mistakes from each of them. We're going to talk about mistakes from their fields. So there's a great variety of guests coming up from so many different industries. I hope you will keep listening. And again, thanks for doing so. Thanks for subscribing if you've already done so. Please rate and review us if you have the chance on your favorite app of choice. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.